0: stakeholders in the world tonight you have nothing to lose but all your property
1: welcome back to mind matters everyone i'm harrison kayley joined as usual by adam daniels and from a secret remote remote location Elon martin today we are pleased to have uh back with us michael rechtenwald to discuss his latest book there it is, the Great Reset and the struggle for liberty, unraveling the global agenda. The book came out in January, I believe, just uh, just about a month ago. Michael,
0: right? And yeah, January tenth. So yeah,
1: January tenth, and I've got a review of it on uh, on my Substack, and I'll recommend in the. In the review, I recommend that everyone buy it. So I'm just going to do that right away. So before you even listen to the interview, you can head over <laughs> head over and buy the book. Michael, where where's the best place to purchase it? And where's the second best place to purchase it?
0: Uh, the best place is directly from me on my website, michaelrectinwall.com. And I send out signed copies that way. Uh, the second best is Amazon. Uh, I'm kind of torn between the two because I like the Amazon ratings, but I also like the direct sales because I sign copies, send them out, ship them directly, and uh, you know we bypass the middleman. Sounds good. Well, welcome back.
1: First, we had you on. A, I'm you. guessing it was guessing it was about a year ago. But um, so you've been writing this book in the meantime. Um, tell us a bit about the last year for you. Um, what you've been doing and how this book came about
0: yeah well um so i i had written a series of essays on on the great reset and uh i thought i had enough material uh and i wanted to go further into all kinds of elements of this that i didn't cover that i hadn't covered to date and so uh, i i went into uh writing ketosis, if you will, uh, where I did nothing but write. And uh, I spent maybe 12 to 15 hours a day writing uh, and uh, pumped it out in, I'd say, four to five months. And uh, it's a pretty long book, 365 pages. So I was pretty deep into it. And I'm never satisfied. I, I think there's a lot more I could have said. Um, and, uh, but I, I couldn't keep going forever. So I just cut it off where I was. And, um, so th- then it's been, a you know, frankly, it's been a lot of interviews, uh, since, uh, the book came out, just a lot of interviews. And, uh, and, and this one is my favorite. This honestly, this is my favorite. Um, uh, these were a lot of radio things and, uh. You know which you can't really get things across in the radio it's like a few minutes you know it's real tough to get into any depth on anything and you just kind of hit the highlights and people want all the hysterical points and uh they just want to hear the whipped up frenzy uh, and uh, outrage you know the outrage meter is on so uh you know uh, and i tried to write the book and not not in that way as uh I think Harrison can attest to that. I uh, wanted it to be as analytical and measured as possible, uh, and still ferret out the implications of what the project is.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that definitely comes across in the book. It's uh, I I in in my review I put it something like uh, you know it moves moves from the the realm of crazy person to you know a smart sophistication of conspiracy studies because it's a uh, <laughs> it, it's one of those, one of those class, like classic books. I mean, there are a lot of them, um, where, um, like, what's his name? The guy that did the, the Wall Street and the Bolshevik revolution stuff. Like there are a lot of good, oh, Sutton, Anthony yeah. Sutton, like there are a lot of good yeah. books that Sutton, get yeah. deep into this, this sort of stuff. And, um, and you've got the advantage of being a, you know, a prof... Uh, an ex-professional academic. Uh, you know, you're still you're still an academic, but you're not yeah. in the academic world anymore. But so so everything is is footnoted and and cross-referenced, and you you get into the the absolute like primary documents and all the all the details, and then you just ferret out the conclusions from those. So it's not a it's not a hysterical book, but the subject matter is uh you know it lends itself to well, it lends itself a to conspiracy thinking, as you talk about and and analyze in the book, and it lends itself to some yeah. to you know to some hysterical reactions, on, you know, to, from some people. But the book itself is totally straight and and uh, it's it's fair and balanced, I would say, um, with some <laughs> with, with some um, you know you don't hold back either. I mean, you know, there are points where you just uh, you kind of you just say it like it is because there's some crazy stuff. Um, going, yeah. there's some crazy stuff behind all of this. And maybe to get into that, yeah. I'll just give a little summary of the book. So it's in, um, how many parts is it? Yeah, five parts. And the the first part's kind of like an introduction, um, you know, introduction to the Great Reset, but then part one, you deal all with the e- economics of it. Part two, um, the pretty much like the, the history, because there's a long history and then getting into climate catastrophe, Climate catastrophism, the fourth industrial revolution, and transhumanism, um, and then conspiracy theory at the end. So, what I mean, I found each section to be just really interesting. I don't even I don't even know where I want to start. But well, maybe we can skip ahead to the part two because there's a history to this that I think a lot of people probably aren't aware of. When I hear about the Great Reset or I see it discussed, it's just the Great Reset. You don't really hear about the precursors to it, where it came from and, and what the WEF was doing for the past, like, uh, you know, 50 years, because it's been around since what, 1971, 1972, something around there. Yeah, so 70, maybe yeah. tell, tell us a little bit about the the history, not only of the WEF, but what it came out of, like, what are the kind of groups that uh, mm-hmm. that were precursors to what we see today?
0: Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I tried to get a handle on where this WEF you know, what, what is their heritage? What, what is their lineage? What's the ancestry for this organization? And uh, so it, it, it became pretty clear that they are uh, coming out of the round table movement um, which was uh, basically started uh, as the Rhodes Society uh, by Cecil Rhodes and and then a number of roundtable groups evolved out of that round table movement. And uh, the basic premise of this round table movement at the outset was uh, effectively to spread British imperialism um, around the globe and uh, to spread a British viewpoint and culture uh, broadly around around the globe. And to sort of bring the whole globe into an anglophilic uh, valence, if you will. And um, but the so some of the first groups that came out of that movement were, of course, the uh, the uh, Chatham House group itself. uh, That's the Royal Institute of International Affairs. Uh, I think it was founded in 1920 and then. Uh, the Council on Foreign Relations, which is the American counterpart of the of the prior, which was, I think, founded in 1921. And then um, and then uh, there's some other groups that came out of the same mold. Uh, that includes the Club of Rome. Uh, the Bilderberg Group actually precedes the Club of Rome, the, the Bilderberg Group, the Club of Rome. Then finally, the WEF is born and then uh, the Trilateral Commission. These are all cognate groups. They follow in the same line of ancestry. They share uh, a tremendous amount of membership and ideology. They share the same political outlook. Uh, they share this kind of new globalism, uh, which, you know, as I pointed out in the book, this British imperialist uh, uh, movement, really morphed into a multilateral, multicultural globalism. And uh, the WEF jumped on board of that, uh, changing its name to the World Economic Forum in 1985. It it had been called the European Management Forum. Uh, And uh, in 1971, when that was founded, Schwab also wrote this book uh, called... uh, uh, and uh, something like, I can't remember the exact title, Management in and uh, Mechanical Engineering, Corporate Management uh, Mechanical Engineering, or something to that effect. That book title keeps slipping my mind. But in that book, he introduced this idea of stakeholderism. Uh, and that becomes the premise for stakeholder capitalism, which is the uh, economic system that the uh, that the World Economic Forum has been pushing ever since. So really, um, the Great Reset goes all the way back uh, to the beginning of this multilateral, multicultural globalism, uh, which all of these roads Roundtable groups aspire to and promote uh, and have promoted so for, for decades. So you could say the Great Reset starts in 1971, really. And uh, but even if you go further, you could say that this kind of globalism was uh, already afoot in the 1920s. How how would you categorize this? uh,
1: How would you categorize this globalism, or like, or define it, or give us examples? So what is like, so when you say globalism, I mean it's a it's a word that a lot of people probably don't have a specific understanding of. Um it's just, you know, for mm-hmm. a lot of people, it's just, oh, the evil globalists, but what exactly is globalism? Like how yeah. did this how did and how did this yeah. differ maybe from the anglo anglophilia that were they were trying to promote in some of these groups beforehand?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I would say that one thing is one way to think about this is distinguish between globalism and globalization. So globalization is merely just to spread uh the benefits I think of free market enterprise around the world and to help have open and, uh, trade, uh, fair, open and fair trade between various regions. But globalism is a centralized management of globalization. Uh, and, uh, it, it means to have a kind of executive committee running the globalized, uh, economy. Uh, and, um, uh, the, the, um, it's multicultural and multilateral, and that is they want to bring in all of these different regions and people from all these different regions, and, um, and they, don't want it, they want it to be multilateral, not having a national center, uh, not being either American imperialism or British imperialism, because uh, they want this to be centralized, but also to include all the regions of the world in it. Under a new rubric that's not uh, British imperialism or American imperialism, Uh, so that's why it's kind of multilateral. Um, How else would I uh, uh, classify it? It's it's a uh, it's it's a form of internationalism. you know like socialism marxism it aims to be an international system this this aims to be an international system like that uh to include all the uh all the workers of the world but really all the all the all, all the uh economic stakeholders uh, agents of the, of the world all the stakeholders yeah all the stakeholders, stakeholders with, of the, stakeholders
1: the world stakeholders of the world unite
0: <laughs> Yeah. Stakeholders in the world tonight, you have nothing to lose, but all your property. Uh, So, uh, and uh, so, yeah, um, I I think, does that answer your question on that front? Yeah.
1: Um, I think so. Um, And well, one of the things that that kind of relates to another of the words that popped out to me, and that's, uh, and you hear it all the time, is this global governance thing. And I think that that right. that phrase expresses this idea of this kind of centralized globalism, this central centralized but multilateral control. It's like so they basically fish people out from all these countries. It doesn't matter what country you're from; um, you can be part of this uh, part of this group, part of this multilateral mm-hmm. front. And the one of the goals of this front, or one of their purposes, is uh, one of the things they do is global governance. And I just found this to be a, a really interesting word because I mean, it's just another way of saying world government, but they call it global governance. And yeah. so this is kind of an right. expression of this, the direction that th- these things are going. It's, it's how, how do we all coordinate so that we, we run the world together. And I just want you maybe comment on that, that whole idea or what well, that actually means or where yeah, it goes.
2: Because that's a, no, that's a, I think that's a good point. And I would like to get uh, Michael's opinion on it because like you're, like you're saying, it does kind of like, it gives it a softer edge you know, instead of saying this is a mm-hmm. one world government where we tell everyone what to do, it gives it a nice, like, you know, fluffy, soft demeanor that makes it seem like, no, mm-hmm. we're just all working together to try and make the world equitable for everyone everywhere. Um, so, yeah, I would right. I would really like to get that uh, interpretation, too, because, yeah, yeah I mean...
0: Uh, The other thing they do in terms of this is to include all of these people from various uh, regions and uh, backgrounds. Uh, They want to have all these different uh, stakeholders involved, all these different players. So they they have like an exotic lineup of people. In order to give the appearance that this is like, Uh, being directed for the benefit of all these various peoples of the world. But really, it's still this kind of centralized executive management system. And um, so this is really a ruse on their part. And everything they say has to be decoded. Uh, Global governance uh, uh, means that they're, they're not necessarily... Like telling everyone what to do, but they they get the they get the instructions out to all of the global partners who then execute these instructions, and so that, that's what the stakeholder capitalism does. Uh, it it is uh, a way of getting everybody on the same page. And ironically, the the last annual meeting they called it uh, the the theme was. Uh, Cooperation in a fragmented world and uh, fragmentation is their enemy. And so we we can think about what fragmentation must mean to them. What it means, I think, is uh, basically people doing things without uh, without falling under their direction, doing things independently. That's fragmentation. That's their they they despise fragmentation. In fact, they've written about fragmentation in. Yeah, and yeah, they write about fragmentation. Well, frag- diversity is okay as long as it's all included. So uh, you have to have inclusion with diversity, which means a totalizing system in which everybody is a part. Uh, that's why inclusion is so big and part of this uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, trio. You have to have inclusion because that gives it the totalizing Element totalizing, uh, you know, ethos that they demand. Uh, So yeah, equity. I mean, sorry, diversity and fragmentation. Fragmentation is just people doing things independently, uh, and uh, that's what they they don't they don't want. They don't want people doing. And so decentralization is another way to read fragmentation. They hate decentralization. Uh, This means people being semi-autonomous or autonomous acting independently of their designs. And that's out of the picture. That's out of the question for them.
2: Because it's very much uh, similar to the... uh, I'll just say this real quick and I'll let you jump in, Elon. Uh, it's it's very much, and and you even like tie it in uh, in the book where you know all of these things with the WEF it ties directly into like Marxist thinking or it directly parallels if not you know directly copies from um, Marxist thinking and and socialist thinking where the only way it works is if it's all inclusive and everyone and nothing can be outside of it um, and that is right uh, the, kind of you know it cannot work any other way unless everyone is willing unless everyone is willing to play the game or unless everyone does play the game that they're trying to make everyone play, then it cannot work just period because any dissent or any differences of opinion and uh, difference of governance creates disharmony, quote unquote uh, mm-hmm. from their perspective that
0: um, yes. And they use yes. the phrase collective, collective and collectivity and collective uh, sharing and world, sh- you know, collective and cooperation, global cooperation all the time. And they talk about a shared destiny. Uh, everybody must be collectively involved in the same thing and we must all have the same destiny. Uh, our destiny must be shared uh, this is these are watchwords for totalitarianism. I mean, it's that simple.
3: Yeah, go ahead, Alan. So, um, Michael, you you've had a, a couple of successful, a few successful books prior to uh, this latest, the Great Reset, um, Springtime for Snowflakes, uh, the Google Archipelago, and it seems to me that um, all of all of that research has been a, a kind of progression for you culminating in this uh this this grander um view this greater view of how it all fits in and it does all fit in and one of the points that you make in um springtime for snowflakes in particular uh but you get into again in the great reset i think um is is how big a part wokeness plays uh in in the emotional and psychological manipulation of the masses uh so that there is this kind of um induced uh guilt about being uh privileged and how because you were privileged for some time now you have to kind of give up stuff because Uh, Otherwise, you're a bad person and um, and you're supposed to be okay with it. And and what's so interesting also is this uh, similar manipulation, as you mentioned, about, um, you know, the climate, the climate emergency and how there is this induced. Well, you know, hey, people, you're you're fucking up the planet. So basically, you know, it's time for us to. Watch, you know, every bit of uh, carbon, you know, emissions that you're responsible for. Uh, You're going to have a few less conveniences and and it's you you've messed things up so bad. We're trying to correct it, but you've got (laughs) to you've got to play along with us. Yeah. So I thought that these were, you know, you don't realize that it's a manipulation until, you know, someone. uh, Well, you do. But I thought you, you clarified those points and, and how there's this incredible crossover uh, in tactics among the, you know, in influencing the public uh, to go along with this. And I wonder if you could elaborate on some of that for us.
0: Yeah. So I've always been dissatisfied with uh, explanations about wokeness and what, it's, uh, what it is for, what its function is. So I, I always try to look at things in, in terms of function. And, uh, you know, uh, there, there's a lot of uh, hand-wringing and, you know, dec- declamations about wokeness and all that. But I, I thought uh, they kind of miss the point about what it's doing. And, uh, and so uh, I thought, you know, there, the, the function has to have to do with something about behavioral modification and uh, control. Uh, and so... Uh, I thought wokeness, you know, really represents a kind of uh, uh, an ideological reset that has to happen in order for this Great Reset to take place. And so when we know that the goal of the Great Reset is effectively you own nothing and be happy, uh, what could wokeness be but a way of ideologically inducing you into acceptance of this state? And so, you know, all about, uh, everything about wokeness is about, it really doesn't do anything for the so-called beleaguered or the disadvantaged or the uh, various uh, underdog identity groups that it claims to uh, uh, champion. Uh, To me, it's always aimed at the majority and the majority uh, in terms of destroying their uh, viability in some way. Uh, So, yeah, uh, it's a, this whole idea of privilege really is a key, I think, is a tip off to the idea that basically if, if everything you have and your way of life, your accomplishments, even uh, your property, your mobility, your 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 freedom of speech, if all these things are a function of privilege, then uh, they can be revoked and they should be revoked if, in fact, they're not, You're not deserving of them. Uh, and so that, that I think is what wokeness does. Wokeness serves that function. And uh, it, it'll work on a decent proportion of the population that way. Uh, and I think it is working that way on a decent proportion of the population. There'll be dissidents, of course, who do not buy it. And, uh, but mm-hmm. it, it'll have a pretty broad effect. And I think uh, we're seeing that effect. And people basically accepting the the curtailment of their rights and the curtailment of their lifestyles and their mobility and their speech rights and on and on and on.
3: And, and what's so interesting, as you point out, you know, you make these distinctions between uh, shareholder capitalism, uh, stakeholder capitalism, and you... You know, you mentioned um, socialism and communism, where at least uh, the people had the the false promise of living in a future utopia where everything yeah. would be wonderful for everyone. Here, shareholder uh, capitalism is no; it, it's going to be pretty bad for you. But you know, you you know, th- this is what you've you've earned as a as a person of privilege. <laughs> it's yeah. like it doesn't even <laughs> promise anything. Um, in, in the way that socialism and communism did. It's like the worst of all worlds, basically.
1: <laughs> it's basically promising it, you it's amazing, what the socialists yeah. actually got.
3: <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's exactly, it's uh, it's actually more truthful in the sense that it, it doesn't uh, promise you this cornucopia uh, and freedom from necessity, uh, which Marxism promised, uh, effectively freedom from necessity. That was the main Uh, selling point. Uh, And then, uh, you know, this shared cornucopia, it says you're going to be bereft of property, you're going to lose out. And this is something you need to accept. And uh, this is all for the better. It's even for your own good. Uh, It's for your own good that you'll actually lose out uh, because you can't be trusted with these things. Uh, you can't be trusted with an automobile, you can't be trusted with fossil fuel use at all, you can't be trusted with spe- free speech, you can't be trusted with free mobility, uh, you can't be trusted with these things, and uh, it's better for the our common collective well-being, our the collective good that you mm-hmm. sacrifice, that you abdicate these things, or otherwise we'll get them off of you some other way, but yeah
1: let's let's uh one of the other interesting
0: points
3: uh just last point for now um one of the other uh, there's so many things about your book michael that i you know i i I was saying to harrison at the start of reading your book i said you know how much i've read on the great reset harrison i've read it all before and it's not true uh your book I, i i i realize at the top of the show you you thought that you could have written more Michael, your book covers so much that I didn't know, uh, in a in a very clear manner. It, it's really really appreciated. I just wanted to say that to you. But, thank you. Um, no, thank you. Uh, one of the ways that um, that all of this that all of these policies are getting implemented, um, uh, I knew about the young global leaders. Uh, we we hear about that in the news from time to time. That Trudeau and Macron and and uh, Merkel and a, and a host of others, Cynthia Friedland, I think her name is, yeah. were were young, these people who were groomed uh, by the World Economic Forum to uh, to basically be uh, shills and to implement, you know, the the orthodoxy of of the Great Reset for the past however many years. What I didn't know, what I never heard, what I've never heard of, is this group called the Global Shapers which would appear to be even larger, uh, you know, sure. thousands of people in media, in politics, in business, who are these like, like little Trojan horses running around uh, the world's stable and, and putting their nose in and, and, and pushing for all of these policies. So I wonder if you can uh, touch upon, you know, the, the, the global shapers as, as, as they're called. And yeah. tell us what they do. Really. The
0: global shapers. Uh, so the global young global leaders are people forty and under uh, who have who show promise for global governance. Uh, the global shapers uh, they are people thirty and younger uh, who prom- who show promise for global governance, and there are. Thousands and thousands of those. Uh, And they have uh, 450 city hubs around the world. Uh, They run into, they go out into the local governance uh, bodies and they infiltrate these bodies and they bring forth the the World Economic Forum and the UN's uh, agenda. And they do it under the cover of youth. So um, this is kind of like the Greta Thunberg uh, brigade uh they they are coming at you like uh well you have to do this for the sake of our future and uh so they guilt trip you with their youth and this and this makes you have to obey them on the basis of well it's our future after all you're the you're leaving us this legacy we want you to leave us this legacy And likewise, you have to behave in this way. And so they use this cover of youth for this uh, totalitarian regime. These are the little uh, brown shirts, the little uh, actually closer to the Maoist Red Guards uh, is really the analogy I would draw. They're like the the, the Red Guards who are these young people running around uh, infiltrating state and local governments uh, all over the planet at 450 city hubs. I forget the total number of these uh, global uh, shapers that, and their meetings are clandestine. You can't know what's going on in them unless you're invited. Uh, so this is semi-secret again. Uh, and I believe they're being indoctrinated along the same lines into the climate catastrophism, into the population ethics, into the uh, uh, stakeholderism. Uh, ESG, uh, and, and let's not leave out uh, the the virus and vaccine response uh, to the pandemic uh, scenarios that'll uh, that have come up and that will continue. I'm afraid to rear their ugly heads. So they are being trained in response to respond in the same way that the glo- the young global leaders did to the pandemic, which was the most. Uh, To institute the most draconian lockdown and uh, social distancing and masking and uh, vaccine mandating uh, of any uh, leaders on the planet. This has actually been studied, and I cite a study to that effect uh, that studied the effects of these young global leaders on the pandemic response. Well, these global shapers are being indoctrinated into the very same types of responses to all of these elements and uh, they are using like this cover of youth as a way to bring this uh, all about it's very scary i think we want to see what these global shapers turn shapeshift into and what uh, we, we should try to mark every last one of them and figure out where the hell they are uh you know we need some sort of a tracing chemical on them so we know where these people are at all times and what they're up to. I think that's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, uh.
1: It almost sounds like the the creation, like the artificial artificial creation of a new kind of global aristocracy. It's the you've got these various selection mechanisms. So you got a, you know the big pool of of the youth, and then from those you fish out the the leaders when they get to a certain age. And so it's pretty much an attempt to. Solidify the creation and the long-term stability of a, a constant supply of of new, you know, new leaders, new new aristocrats, the new like the new ruling class. But mm-hmm. on a on a global level, it's pretty mm-hmm. pretty creepy. But well, and that that might be an yeah. an element of because it's called the they use the word the Great Reset. So, what exactly is being reset? Um, could you get into the like w- what is Schwab actually talking about when when he came up well, did he come up with that with that phrase? I can't remember if he was the first to use it or if or if he kind of adopted it right but uh well whatever. It, yeah whatever so so what, what what do they actually look what do they think needs to be reset
0: Well primarily it's the global economy um and the big target there is the supposed free market system which they want to uh app they want to eradicate because the free market uh, they say uh allows for uh uh kind of a creative destruction and uh it's it's uh it favors growth over uh the the common good and uh and so on and so forth. So they really wanna reset the economic structure, the economic system to stakeholder capitalism. That's the main reset. Uh, And stakeholder capitalism is the overarching uh, system they wanna put in place. And the main means for undertaking it and putting it into place is the environmental social and governance index, uh, which is on the stock market, but also being applied to corporations uh for uh, for the purposes of everything from loans to insurance uh and and so on and so forth so there this is a kind of a grading system that that is being used to evaluate just how compliant these companies are with uh the stakeholder regime uh so that's the scorecard for the stakeholder capitalism the esg uh and then being reset, of course, is the global behavior of all all global citizens. Uh, because once you change all the production, such that certain things are produced and other things aren't, and you need to also change the consumption patterns of the planet, and they want to change our consumption patterns dramatically, uh, and so that's being reset. Um, what what does that mean? It means. You know, they're trying to change our behavior in terms of uh, mobility, uh, diet, uh, uh, energy use in general. Uh, they want to put us all in what they call 15 minute cities where everybody is within 15 minutes by bike, by bicycle or on foot from any, everything they need. And uh, there'll be no need to go outside of this 15 minute city for anything. They hate the the rural the rural uh, dwellers. They hate rural life. They hate. Uh, they want to turn the suburbs into, uh, urban. Uh, they want to urbanize the suburbs by moving high rise uh, uh, buildings into those places. Uh, basically, collapsing uh, distinction between the city and the suburb, and uh, also basically. Destroying any kind of sense of exclusivity uh, that the suburbs may have connoted, uh, so that you have basically urban dwellers everywhere, and um, you they're, they're 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 trying to do de- you know zoning changes. They're doing this in New York right now. They're they're changing the zoning in the suburbs so they can put up high-rise buildings, probably projects of sorts as they call it in the U.S. Um, Uh, I forget what they call it in England, but uh, uh, basically, this is a resetting of all behavior. uh, All in line with stakeholderism and under the pretext of climate change and pandemic responses, uh, basically.
1: Well, reading the book, I got the impression that... So you've got all these different policies, all of these different different aspects of behavior on every level that are being transformed. Yeah. That they want to be transformed. And when you look at, so there are, there are various reasons given for all of these, but it seemed like reading your book, they all kind of tend to funnel down to one or two reasons. Because um, you, you've got the, you know, the wokeness, uh, the D-I, DEI, D-I-E, you know, ESG, all of these things, but they all seem to be, um, um, well, well, what I did, I what the way I kind of read the book is that, okay, now you kind of, it looks like all of these are for the purpose of um, stemming off climate change or, or and well, mm-hmm. and um, having something to do with the population. But then you in the first mm-hmm. chapters on yeah. climate, cha- climate catastrophism, it's like, well, the climate catastrophism is kind of um, kind of bogus, do they, do they really believe this? And it, it kind of, what you're left with is kind of that the, the root reason, maybe the only reason for all of this stuff comes down to this neo-Malthusian uh, agenda. So maybe mm-hmm. could you comment mm-hmm. on that? Like, would you agree with that? Is that the main, uh, like the the main thing motivating all of this, all, everything that comes out of it, or is there more going on? Like, yeah, how does that work?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, I've tried to figure this out in terms of like all these pieces and how they fit together and what this leaves us. You know, so I didn't say this in the book, but what what I see is this. They they look at the mass of humanity as a scourge on the planet, and they have an idea of their own sort of Eden, if you will. They are utopians, in effect. Although for us it's a dystopia, they have their own ideal of uh, uh, utopian ideal, and they see the masses as this threat. So look at it this way: they see themselves as trying to maintain a certain idenic. Paradisical uh, dwelling, and they look at us as encroaching on this and at all times threatening it. So, what has to happen? They have to reduce our numbers. Our numbers uh, lead to the kind of consumption that they think is unsustainable. So, unsustainable and sustainability definitely imports this neo Malthusianism, that is, this interventionism to to reduce the population uh, in order to stave off the kind of consumption they see as a threat to this ident- identic, uh, uh situation that they want to uh, establish or maintain. Uh, so, I mean, they're very religious at base, okay? Uh, there's no question that there is, in fact, I've been just reading more on the environmental movement, the history of environmentalism. And they come straight out and say, without an Eden and an original sin, we don't have anything. That's we need to have our own version of an Eden and an original sin. And so to get back to the kind of Eden that they want, they have to have this myth, this kind of Eden myth, and they must have an original sin that takes place within this Eden and that original sin is the kind of industrial uh, production and the uh, over uh, and uh, all of that that has to that has to be uh, reversed uh, so yeah uh, pop- it all hinges on population because uh, that the way they see the masses consumption as this major uh, imp- a real a major threat to the to the way of life that they see uh, as as a desirable state, this kind of Eden, uh, and uh, so people in their masses and their habits are the problem. Uh, that's what's encroaching on their idenic uh, paradisical world. Yeah, one of the.
1: Well we've we've already kind of touched on this but uh, I well, uh, a few minutes ago while you were talking uh, what something came to mind and that was a, a tweet that Scott Adams made in the last month or so and it was on the WEF and he was kind of playing his usual role of um, annoying devil's advocate. and he said, well what what did the what is the yeah. w f ever ever actually done? Like what have they actually been effective at? You know is it is it all hype? So what exactly has been the effect of the, the WEF that that we can see in the world
0: oh that's that's a great question. And uh, I have to say that people that say, well, they're just a bunch of ineffectual elitists, and they just go to these meetings and nothing really happens." These people are so full of shit that it's hard to even address that they have signed on over a thousand corporate partners to their agenda. These are the world's leading corporations. They have signed on the world's leading asset managers. They have signed on the world's leading banks, both central and commercial banks are signed on to this agenda. They have infiltrated all of these organizations. Have driven in their agenda through all of those companies, through all of those uh, banks, through all of those institutions. And they have this playbook is metastasizing and it's being executed by all these individual players, corporate, uh, institutional, uh, and, and uh, financial. The whole financial system has been totally reorganized along these lines. Altogether, there's 4100 asset managers that are signed on to the UN's principles for responsible investment which are entirely along the lines of the ESG score and the stakeholder capitalism regime. So, what have they accomplished? They have uh, they have instituted a worldwide global system that is under completely underway that's completely in action. And that is changing everything under our noses Um, all without having really had to do anything in terms of legislation. They've bypassed legislative bodies. They've bypassed uh, democratic processes. All of this has been done without a single shot being fired and even a law being altered.
2: Well, that's very much the what is it? The uh, Antonio Gramsci's cultural revolution um, type of thing where yeah. in order to change the world, you have to change the culture. And somebody really smart figured out, oh, if you infiltrate the elites, you've got them. And so I think that that's yeah. kind of, you know, what you're what you're pointing out is that they, they seized on this idea and capitalized on it and uh, ran with it to the extent that, like you say, they've now been able to infiltrate it's dozens they penetrated
1: all of
0: our cabinets.
2: They've penetrated all the cabinets.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's very much along the lines of uh, Gromsky's idea of cultural hegemony. First, first revolutionized the ideological apparatuses uh, and then penetrate all of these institutions. And then they've gone even further. Uh, by penetrating the world's major corporations and banks and central banks. And uh, they've managed to uh, effect this complete uh, change in uh, cultural hegemony and ideological uh, uh, disposition of all these organizations. Uh, and I would say that the elite are, I call them the subversive elites. These are the people that are undertaking it. Uh, this has been a movement of subversive elites. The so-called long march through the institutions is really not some sort of grassroots movement from the bottom up. It has not been that at all. It's actually been undertaken by elites themselves.
3: And and what's so interesting also uh, just to drill down a little bit into this idea of ESGs, uh, for those who've never heard of it, environmental, social, and governance. So it's this kind of scorecard by yeah. which uh, a, a corporation gets rated for its um, its gestures gestures towards diversity and wokeness and uh, and environmentalism. And the extent to which you kind of tick off the boxes for being an e s g corporation is is like the extent to which you're part of the club and accepted by the um, uh, the the kind of core uh, w e f you know, I, I guess uh, inner circle. Mm-hmm. you get the okay, basically. it is is what the implication is. And then you get invested in, but if you don't fall into these ESG parameters, you're pretty much on the outs. Is that is that correct? Yes. That you know you're yes. kind of threatened with being, uh, you know,
0: we won't work with you. You're not
3: part no, no, of no, no, the, it, it, You know you it, don't. It,
0: see- it, it's blatant. Uh, it's blatant. They say this straight up, and they do it too. Larry Fink. Uh, The uh, CEO of BlackRock, Inc., which is the most powerful asset manager in the world, which also runs a computer program that is uh, leading all of the assets uh, and directing almost all investments worldwide. Aladdin, it's called. Uh, They are um, basically deciding winners and losers. This is a cartel scheme. It's a shared monopoly scheme. It drives, out, it drives capital to the compliant and it drives it away from the non-compliant and starves them of capital investments. Larry Fink said this straight up. There's a tectonic shift uh, underway in capital investment. And if you don't meet the stakeholder bar or the ESG bar, you're out. Uh, Bank of America's uh, Brian Moynihan said the same thing. If you don't meet the stakeholder bar, you're not worthy of loans. Uh, yes, this is what it is. It's a, it's a, so people ask, why do these people accept all these infringements of their property rights in terms of determining what, what they do with their own property? Because it's a cartel scheme. Uh, once, it's a woke cartel, I call it. Once you are accepted into this wolf cartel, you get capital investments, you get to be a viable player. If you're not in the wool cartel, you get to be starved of capital. You get to be canceled, in effect.
3: Mm. Wow. And there was another interesting thing, um, which might be a little bit of a digression, but it, it's a, it's a point that you make very strongly, Michael, and that is that You know, a lot of these World Economic Forumites, these great resetters, are also uh, working for the UN, are Mm -hmm. also working for the IMF, are also employed by the World Health Organization, Mm -hmm. are also members of the Council for Foreign Relations and the Bilderbergers and the trilateral commissions and the Club of Rome and you know all of these secret mm-hmm. societies that everyone looks about Alex Jones you know, has been talking about everyone. all these the demons <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah they're all you know people have multiple memberships and and seem to spread their their little you know wings in in their spheres of influence but but the WF right now would seem to be The place to be you know uh, among so many of these people yeah um and that was a a very interesting point that you made in in your book too i thought
0: yeah the wf is like the public face of globalism um some of these other organizations have been more or less secret they've operated under the chatham house role which is a which is a uh, vow of secrecy uh under which you could uh you could you could say what was said at a meeting. You couldn't say who said it or where you heard it. You could spread the ideas that were mentioned, but you couldn't uh, reveal the identity of the of the speaker or the place that you uh, ran. You know, that you were introduced to the idea. Uh, the, the, the World Economic Forum has a semi secret, um, uh, semi secret character. It is uh, both. It has secret meetings that operate under the Chatham House rule, which very few people know about. Uh, There's the public face, though, where they all these, uh, you know, all these sessions are held publicly and on uh, broadcast on the Internet. Um, But um, there are these secret meetings underway as well. and, yeah, there's the, it's the, this is a very incestuous pool of elitists. They're, they're, all, all, they're all involved in all these different organizations. Uh, th- that's what proves to me that they are really cognate, uh, ancestrally uh, connected institutions. And it's little well known that the WEF actually has a contract with the U.N., they signed in a contract in, in 2019. They are partners in bringing about the UN's 2030 Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, so that's one other way to understand the Great Reset is a uh, is a private a public-private partnership uh, element of the agenda 20 of the UN's Agenda 2030 Sustainable Development Goals. It is the public private partnership uh, component of accelerating um, the uh, agenda two thousand thirty
1: well speaking of agenda they 2030... Bring in all the
0: corporate... yeah
1: you've got a chapter yeah, where you bring go the through
0: corporate partners
1: okay. yeah sorry you've got all a right. chapter where you go through agenda we've got a delay for viewers and listeners yeah. you 've got a chapter where you go through all of the um, all of the Agenda 2030 goals, and then you kind of um, decode the the doublespeak. Maybe as a way of summarizing that, maybe could could you give us a picture of what the world will look like in 2030 if all of those goals are met? Like so, stripping away all of the all of the the doublespeak and the jargon, what would the world? Yeah. What might the world look like if they actually get what they want?
0: Uh, Yeah, you're going to have basically uh, the stakeholder model totally rolled out across the planet. Uh, Everybody basically living under Agenda 2030. And what what would that mean? That means that um, you would have um, uh, all of the world's assets uh, cataloged under the Internet of Things and all the world's people and their bodily processes uh datified under the internet of bodies, uh, you would have um, effectively uh, everybody uh, complying with uh, of the climate change uh, catastrophist precepts such that your, your consumption of fossil fuels will be extremely limited. Uh, you will not be able to probably drive a car Uh, uh, Certainly not a fossil fuel, uh, uh, not a fossil fuel burning car. Uh, You will probably not have uh, much access to uh, uh, meat. Uh, You'll probably be not eating a lot of meat. You'll probably be eating other forms of protein. And this is not a joke. Maybe bugs and uh, also uh, uh, synthetic meats. Uh, there'll be uh, centralized government uh, control and stakeholder control uh, using central banks uh, to basically redistribute wealth across the world. Um, there'll be centralized banks uh, controlling and centralized government and uh, stakeholder control of agriculture so that there'll be no use of nitrates in fertilizers, pesticides in farming, et cetera. Uh, they'll introduce uh, sustainable forms of protein, insects, and synthetic meats. Uh, there will be uh, centralized uh, governmental and stakeholder uh, uh, healthcare, so totally socialized healthcare worldwide, if they have their way. Uh, with the WHO in charge of all uh, all, all uh, responses to health emergencies, and all of their whatever the WHO says will be effectively the law in in all the various regions and government countries of the world. Uh, you'll have um, centralized governmental control over education. Um, Probably uh, uh, the educational system will be completely collectivist in its uh, in in its outlook and ideological uh, disposition. Um, You're probably going to have much more uh, control over reproduction. Uh, They're doing it through equity or gender equality, which really means uh, basically women. Uh, in- exclusively in careerist uh, orientations so that they don't reproduce. Uh, they're going to be uh, way more family planning and uh, encouragement of abortion and uh, euthanasia probably also to reduce the population. We see this happening in Canada, and it'll be spreading. Uh, you're going to have much more control over resources of all sorts, uh, especially land and uh, water resources. Uh, most likely, consolidation of farming in the hands of a few preferred producers, uh, and less fragmentation, which is their real enemy. Uh, you know. Basically the legislation will come so that fossil fuel based energy will be almost completely outlawed. Uh, And uh, that means (laughs) uh, gas driven locomotion is over. Um, You know, individual foot uh, carbon footprint tracking is likely. Um, You know, um, yeah. I mean, this, this could, I could go on and on, but you, you, you get some of the points here, some of the picture. Well,
1: would that, uh, <clears throat> just on the carbon footprint specifically, would we, would it end up being the same as kind of what we, well, let's say, would it be an extension of the way it is today, where we have this carbon footprint for everyone where you, you can't drive a car, or you can't take a, you know, you can't take a, a flight, but the, Elite still can, right? I mean, will they also be be cutting down their carbon footprints or are they exempt from this?
0: I mean, this is clear that they're exempt and uh, that this is not really a double standard. This is simply the idea that the rules don't apply to them at all. Uh, They only apply to the hoi polloi, to the masses, because the masses are the very are the threatening menace that uh, that they point to. Um, They have to do what they have to do. Their business comes first because they're in the position of relegating all of these things and delegating all of this and controlling all of this. So they have to have their mobility and their uh, their discretion uh, and all these, uh, all these matters. Um, so no, it won't apply to them.
1: Well, and that leads me to something else. Um, because I think that there, are, there are a lot of true believers in all of this who look at this and say, okay, well, this is just what we've got to do because, um, things will be objectively better this way. But they, for yeah. those people, they haven't quite thought it through because, this is essentially creating um like the almost the epitome of a of a privileged elite class system. And in any elite class system, there are th- the advantages to being part of that elite are so strong that that you will get people trying to enter that elite class. Purely for those advantages, so people will look at this right. and say, "Okay, well, the elite class—they don't have to—they don't have to control their carbon out—you know, their carbon footprint. They can do all of these things that they want. They can eat meat. They can do all this. So you, what what you get is this selection mechanism or this uh, this incentive structure that will attract the most the most ruthless and greedy people to become part of that new." class structure. So you basically will attract the worst sort of people. This is kind of the the ponderology element where that the Mm -hmm. very structure of it acts as a, as a, as a selection mechanism to, to, to fish out and bring in the kind of the the, the same type of people that, that uh, like the communist system brought into shape or brought into power in the 20th century. So it's, even, even, even if they're even if a lot of these are well intentioned, even or even a lot of the, even if a lot of the policies are well intentioned, and even if a lot of the people supporting them in the current time are well intentioned, it will just turn out the way that the previous like communist revolutions did like in China and like in the USSR. Yeah. And and then that's that's why in my review I think I called it, you know, one of the sections this is the Black Mirror section of, oh that was on the transhumanism element. It's like there's the black yeah. the, the Black Mirror section of your book where it's like okay, you can just looking at the trends and what they actually want, this will almost inevitably lead to a dystopian Black Mirror episode type reality for human for humanity um even if that's yeah. not what a lot of these people actually want um, but what are your thoughts on that how many people how many people yeah, like today I, I, do you think actually want it like dystopia
0: well i think you're right i think it will attract it'll it'll create a pathocracy as you put it and uh, as lobachevsky puts it i think it'll definitely create a path, uh, pathocracy and it'll definitely promote people on the basis of their ideological adhesions And also they'll basically I think uh, I forget the exact phrase that Lobachevsky uses for this. But when people are promoted, uh, not for competency, but on ideological grounds uh, and uh, political grounds, and uh, they basically fail upward, you know, and uh, the, the, there's there's this promotion, uh, this, uh, well, I forget what the exact phrase, maybe you yeah, can fill well, in that. He
1: uses a, t- two terms, negative selection for the pathological element of it, and then upward socio-occupational adjustment yeah. or adaptation.
0: Yes, uh, upward sociological <laughs> adjustment. Yeah, there's this upward adjustment of people who are basically adhering to the ideology and regardless of their competence. And so you get Pete Buttigieg running the transportation uh, uh, department in the United States, basically, utterly into- on the basis of ideology and identity, and so on and so forth. Yeah. So this, this is definitely what it, it encourages. And I do believe there, there are people that I, I, I get comments when I write about these things, I get some comments on my website and elsewhere, they go, well, this is exactly what's needed. We, we need this stakeholder capitalism. We need this CSG because this climate change is threatening the world. It's, 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 it proposes imminent, uh, it's an imminent catastrophe. Um, so, I mean, there's nothing you could say to these people. This is why I took on the climate catastrophism and the climate science directly, because if you don't take it on directly, then this this lingers as a pretext for the kind of uh, system that they want to bring about, and it has to be addressed straight on. Um, and I think I did.
1: Yeah, because then you'll get uh, if it's almost kind of a a one a one issue voter type issue where. OK, if climate if climate catastrophism or if climate change or if global warming, um, if those if that is the worst thing imaginable. Right. The the extinction of the human race. Yeah. Then then maybe yeah. we just have to have a, a global totalitarian system if that's the only thing we'll, that will, uh, you know, that will stave it off. They yes. never quite put it like that, but that's the that's the logic to it.
0: Yeah, if it's if it's a, if it's the imminent the catastrophe that they say it is. Then, you know, maybe we should all be shackled. Maybe maybe we should all be handcuffed to our beds with our mouths uh, wired shut, Um, because, I mean, whatever it takes to to uh, stave off this disaster, uh, maybe that's what's necessary. It's the same covid covidian logic that we saw at play with reference to the so-called pandemic, Uh, whatever it takes to stave this thing off, uh, inclusive of losing all of our rights and property, and businesses, and and so on and so forth, and health. Um, so, yeah. I mean, there's little to be done about the useful idiots, um, but that's what they are. Uh, there's, unfortunately, an ever-ending supply of useful idiots. As I say, the, this is what I say about the left. The left eats its own, but not fast enough. Because they're mass producing idiots at too high of a rate, uh, so that you know the self eating element is not keeping up with the mass production of useful idiots. Unfortunately.
1: Well, speaking of <laughs> things, that, speaking of things that can be done, the last chapter of your book, the great, yeah. the great refusal—that's what you call it, right? The grand refusal. Grand, yeah, refus- not
0: great. Yeah, grand refusal.
1: Yeah, because yeah, I don't want to use too much. To yeah, no. no. <laughs> well, as a as a preface to that, um, you've got a great chapter on the the great leap backward. Um, so a back uh, a kind of history of of Mao's great leap forward, and then with reference to a um, um, I, I believe it, he was a Soviet academic that wrote a paper on on the on the great leap yeah. backward. He called it as you know a kind of <clears throat> a dig at yeah. the. At the phrase, and then even in the on the first page of the book, um, let me just get it get it open. Yeah, the f- the first page of the introduction. You write, um, yeah. So far, elites have orchestrated the Great Purge, the Great Terror, the Great Leap Forward, and the Great Society. To mention only the most conspicuous great modern projects, despite the disastrous consequences of such hubristic undertakings, the great narrative or the great reset and the great narrative roll unironically from their lips. <laughs> so it's one one in the long tradition of great strategies. So that's why, yeah, so that's why I like that you, you called it the grand refusal. Um, what is the grand yeah. refusal? Do you, well, before we well, before you before you tell us what the grand refusal is do you think that um do you think that some of these policies and ideas uh you know plans that that are part of the great reset do you think some of them are just impossible on the face of it like they'll just come up against inevitable um um like well what would the word be like roadblocks or just they, they just won't be able to get through for various reasons and then um yep. and and then yeah so how does then how would the how does the, well, I'll, I'll say what I think. I think the grand refusal applies to more of the things that that have a better chance of going forward and are steps that need to be yeah. taken to to stop those. Yeah, well, what do you think about that?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think, first of all, on the first question, I think um, the Great Reset uh, economically will lead to a great collapse uh, if it's pushed forward to the extent that they want it to be pushed forward. It it's, it's very, the market distortions that it causes, uh, that it would cause or will cause or is causing, uh, are so great that, uh, it will lead to economic disaster stagnation and, uh, uh, any kind of centralized planning is always, f- uh, f- doomed to fail. Uh, and, uh, this is kind of like a centralized planning uh, through surreptitious means. Uh, and uh, because you can't uh, calculate uh, the worth of anything without uh, without natural prices in the market, you don't know what anything is worth. So it just thwarts the market to such an extent that it just, it'll lead to economic collapse. Uh, and uh, and that may be, I don't even know, some people say that's the goal. Um, but uh, there's the basic premise of the grand refusal is that regardless of who these puppet masters are, uh, what we need to do is cut the strings of the puppet from our bodies and selves. Cut the puppet strings from ourselves so that we're not under their control. Uh, That's the only thing I think we can do. And I don't think that it means necessarily that it will defeat the great, great reset, but it will leave a remnant of people alive who will carry into the future uh, individual rights, uh, personal individual uh, self-determination and autonomy, uh, the free market. Uh, Effectively, it'll leave a legacy for the future at the very least. While while hopefully crippling the Great Reset uh, itself, so there's there's nine points. Uh, they're very specific. I don't know if we want to get into the specifics of it, but they have to do with refusing the technologies, refusing CBDCs, refusing the the Internet of Bodies, refusing the Metaverse as proposed, uh, refusing. Um, the, uh, the uh, transhumanist technologies like brain cloud interfaces and Neuralink link, and for that matter, uh, so that they don't have these surveillance technologies in and on our bodies as desired uh, through the fourth industrial revolution. And then, of course, there's divestment from the ESG, pulling your money out of ESGs if you have any in them, uh, getting your money out of ESG abiding and uh, uh, more than abiding. These are ESG uh, uh, dictatorial banks uh, and, uh, and pressuring our representatives for what it's worth uh, into pulling uh, money out of these ESG financed uh, equities and uh, pensions and so on and so forth. Uh, so there's very specific things, but the general premise is uh, cut the puppet strings,
3: Michael. I I had another um, uh, another kind of uh, question for you um, because uh, the Great Reset has been you know we've been frogs in the proverbial boiling water for quite some time now. Yeah, but it would seem that with with COVID, you know, the West took China as an example of. Uh, implementing totalitarian uh, policy and ran with it. And Er Schwab also came out at one point and even said, hey, guys, this is a great opportunity Mm -hmm. to to enforce our way of thinking and to get people used to uh, medical tyranny and and being told what to do and when to do it and how to do it. So it seems like with COVID in particular, we've reached a, a new level of great resetness. Um, And you spoke a little bit just a moment ago about economic destruction, Uh, and I'm I'm making a larger point here. Um, In 2008, 2009, we had the global financial crisis, Mm -hmm. right? You had all these derivatives and bank failures and systemic failure and and bank um, bailouts. And it seems that between then and now, there has there has been nothing regulatory or in the banking system to prevent something like that from happening again. And not only is that the case, but you know, according to who you read, there's like eighty trillion dollars out there that's involved in these complex um, uh, derivatives and and there are other terms for instruments and. Mm-hmm. In other words, the system is screwed. Yeah. Basically and it And it seems uh, in the minds of some that it's just a question of time before we have this so-called Black Swan event, which occurs, which causes another systemic banking system failure. Mm-hmm. so so i'm I'm like hearing this, and I'm wondering, hey, is this going to be the is this going to be the new opportunity for the world economic forum when that happens to close all the banks one day and open? open them up on Monday and 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 say, hey, folks, we've got a solution. Anyway, if, if there's any part of that that makes sense to you, um, mm-hmm. I was wondering mm-hmm. how you thought that that EDCs might be implemented or what the next event may be that may bring us to the new uh, plateau.
0: If yeah, I mean, a lot of people say that the financial collapse is inevitable. And some, I've said I've read some. Analysts suggest that the gray reset is just like a, a short uh, gap means for uh, giving the financial collapse a softer landing. If we can get rid of uh, people's uh, spending habits and their consum- consumption patterns and the, their, uh, their wealth, uh, then the financial collapse will be less uh, dramatic. Uh, And so, uh, but uh, there's the possibility that the gray Reset is actually what gets fully implemented upon a financial collapse. And and that would entail probably the issuing of the CBDCs as the solution uh, so that people will probably get some sort of Debt forgiveness. Uh, there would be this universal debt forgiveness, but then your banking will be happening strictly uh, through CBDCs. So you're 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 you're, you're effectively getting issued uh, maybe UBI uh, through this through the uh, Fed, and that's it. You know, and all of your other assets are gone, and your and your debt is gone. Uh, this is a possibility, but I, I'm not. I'm not uh, versed enough in the financial uh, sector to be able to address that too much more. Um, I think it's a possibility, but I'm not exactly sure how it relates to the great reset and and unless uh, the great reset is, uh, uh, is the comes along as basically it's full implementation becomes the solution to this financial collapse i think cbdcs will be pushed through if and when there is a financial collapse like that
3: so um, th- this is uh again going in a different direction um because we're we're looking at you know the the black mirror dystopia transhumanist um Uh, assimilation of of society we're looking at political change we're looking at um cultural uh ways new, new ways of looking at things that we have uh as you mentioned earlier michael thousands of these um young global leaders or global shapers uh you know spread out throughout Uh, the West and other places uh, exerting their influence. It's this is um, this is so big in scope and it's so varied and it's so pervasive that my.
0: Yeah,
3: I'm I'm wondering if um, and it's got so many implications for the the near to midterm. Have you ever wondered like what the uh, the metaphysical, uh, if that's a good word, the metaphysical underpinnings of such a massive um uh force for for the for the worse yeah is occurring upon humanity
0: yeah well, what does it mean i mean i i do have my own view on that on what the metaphysics of all this are and i i, I refrained from going that in that direction although i was encouraged by a number of people to, to take it on from that perspective. And so, but this is my, now this is my, uh, faith, uh, commitment to, uh, coming forward here. As I've said before on your show, I am a Christian and I believe that this is evil. Uh, this is unmitigated evil. Uh, these people are effectively antichrist. Um, that is, this is antichrist material that, they aren't the antichrist there's numbers of antichrist uh, players and elements and that's honestly what i do believe um i think it is um this is uh this is um epic apocal, and uh, ap- apocalyptic in in scope yeah
3: um if you do believe in god uh or some higher power and you've Uh, and and one has done enough reading and thinking on what the implications of of all of these changes are and how profound they are it 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 seems kind of difficult not to ascribe some kind of uh spiritual value uh to it And, and in very much the terms that you uh you you put on them so that's all i wanted to say
1: cool yeah yeah i same here. Um, the way I kind of see it, which is something I've talked, I've written about on, on my Substack, is, is uh, there are kind of two visions for the future, broadly speaking, and I kind of think of them as, kind of like metaphysical attractors, you know, like a uh, like a, a non-physical thing that brings things into shape, you know, that brings form to things, and so you've got this idea of, basically a, a world where things can go pretty well, where um, where people are kind of happy and maybe, maybe not a utopia, but things work pretty well. And then you've got this vision of, you know, things in their worst form possible. And the great reset seems like one of these, one of these, uh, means by which to bring about the, (laughs) the worst thing possible. So, um, which is kind (laughs) of like, yeah, antichrist in my, in my book. So, but Michael, was there anything else, uh, anything else you wanted to touch on, um, before we close or is that a good place to end it?
0: Uh, I think that was a great discussion. I appreciate all the questions. And, uh, you know, we I think we plumbed some good depths there. But I, I, you know, I'll just I'll say this. I'm a better writer than I am a speaker. (laughs) So you got to read the book to really get the gist. I just can't command language like with verbal, oral presentation like I feel like I'm able to with writing. So I'm a writer. And uh, that's my ba- my main gift, I think.
1: All right. Well, we've got links to Michael's website where you can buy the book in the description, and we'll we'll give a link to your your uh, Twitter as well. You've got a yeah, you're back on Twitter. You were, you were banned for a while, weren't you?
0: I'm, I'm banned. Period. Uh, this is me oh. inhabiting someone else's Twitter account. I'm basically the ghost in the machine over there. Uh, I took over another account, and they can't do anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> all right well we'll link to the
1: to, to, to michael's ghost in the machine account <laughs> all right all right well thank thank you so much michael it's uh, been a pleasure talking to you um everyone get the book check it out and uh we'll talk to you another time sometime in the future okay
0: <laughs> thanks so much and keep up the great work all right, i appreciate thanks. it take care you too all right thank you, michael bye-bye